An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have Ted Sides as our guest. Ted is one of those people who always seems to be where interesting things are happening in the investment management industry. Legendary investor and Yale Endowment Chief David Swinson's developing his endowment model in the early 1990s. Ted was there. Make a bet with Warren Buffett about whether or not actively managed hedge funds would beat the S&P over 10 years, ended in 2019. Yeah, Ted made it. Interview hundreds of the world's best investors and make that knowledgeable available to all. Today, Ted does it. Most recently, Ted has created capital allocators to explore best practices in the asset management industry. As part of that, Ted hosts the Capital Allocators podcast, which virtually everyone from Barron's to Forbes to the Brunswick Group has named as a top investing podcast. Listeners certainly agree. Ted's Capital Allocator podcasts have been downloaded more than 4 million times. And his book, Capital Allocators, how the world's elite money managers lead and invest is a compendium full of gems of practical advice gathered from his first 150 podcast guests. So welcome, Ted. You're on the other side of the podcast today. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. So what's your origin story? I mean, interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are today? Well, I don't know if I'd call it interesting. I was the son of a psychiatrist and a teacher. And I suppose I was always interested in the markets a little bit. I did have not a proverbial, but an actual rich uncle that was in the money management business, but he lived on the other side of the country. So I wasn't that exposed to it. And that was about it. I went to college. My parents you know, weren't in the business world. So I didn't have kind of business relationships and knowledge at a young age. I didn't trade my bar mitzvah money or anything like that. And I took some classes. I went to Yale as an undergrad. I took some classes in economics. There wasn't really an investing track or anything like that, but I did uh, fortunately take a large um, survey class that David Swenson taught on portfolio management my junior year. And towards the end of the class, he mentioned that they hired one person a year. So when I became a senior, I applied for that job along with a lot of Wall Street jobs. And fortunately, I found myself landing there with two priors. One is I wanted to leave New Haven and the other is I wanted a training program. And I got neither of those things as it turned out. Uh, but it, it really worked out wonderfully. So my first job is really where I started learning about investing from David. So let's talk about that. You joined the Yellow Delman office when David Swenson, head of the office at the time, was sort of creating what is now called the endowment model. Now, my opinion, and I know David and David blurbed one of my books, or knew David blurbed one of my books, is that people often misunderstand what he was trying to do. 
They think his philosophy was to invest in private equity and reap the liquidity premium. Whereas I think the private equity allocation was just the logical fallout of how he viewed the liability side of the endowment. He understood that markets tended to hyper discount, that is, irrationally over discount future cash flows. So he was just looking for every type of diversified equity he could find. You were there. What's your view of how David Swenson thought through the endowment? Why was it so successful? And what did you take away from your experience for the next stages of your career? Well, John, I agree mostly with your view, far closer to that view than I think what's commonly espoused. What David understood deeply was the purpose of that capital for Yale, which was a multi-generational, actually probably many centuries pool of capital with very limited spending needs, particularly when you take into account donations that come in. So yes, they have a spending rate that like many of these pools looks like it's five or 6%, which is a high number over time. But Yale also has significant contributions every year. So you had a really long duration pool of capital, the purpose of which is to maintain the purchasing power of those assets for future generations of scholars. And to do that, you need to generate reasonably high returns. The way you do that, and if you just look at a basic capital structure, is to be in equities. And so David looked at what was commonly done at the time, which was, you know, maybe it was a 60-40 or a 70-30 risk allocation, but primarily U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds. And he said, this doesn't make any sense. This is one bet. We want to be invested primarily in equities because that matches our liability stream, much to what you said. But to diversify that in as many different ways as can make sense, because diversification is the only free lunch. And U.S. equities are exposed to a certain set of conditions that are reasonable compared to U.S. liabilities, which is what Yale has. But there are many more factors you can get exposed to. So when people read his book and say he loved private equity because of the private equity illiquidity premium, yeah, the illiquidity premium was one of many, many factors that go into those decisions. But the truth is, if you only owned U.S. equities and you want to diversify away from U.S. equities, everything else you could possibly own was less liquid. So whether it was private equity or venture capital or real estate or real assets or what became you know, absolute return strategies, absolutely everything else is less liquid than U.S. equities and then U.S. bonds. So by definition, you had to accept some illiquidity. Now, Yale had very long duration liabilities, so they didn't have a problem accepting that illiquidity. Their strategy is not necessarily appropriate for other institutions, either, even other educational institutions that don't have that same flow of gifts, the ability to tap into alums, the ability to raise debt if you needed to and change the capital structure of the institution itself. So much of what he taught made a lot more sense to many, many pools of capital than what was the, the sort of the investment process at the time for many institutions, but, but not precisely what he did. So at the highest level, I, I think that you're right, that there's sort of more subtlety to it than just, we like privates. What were the positive investing lessons you took away from that experience? There were many, uh, I, you know, David wrote about them in his book. And when he wrote that book was, I was a business school at the time. So it was sort of, I had been there five years. I knew what was coming on the next page because he also practiced what he preached every day. Um, yeah, I think at the highest level, an understanding of what the pool of capital is trying to serve. So the real purpose behind the pool of capital, having a philosophy, a set of beliefs. I think about a philosophy, a set of beliefs of how markets work 
about how you go about investing so that you can generate investment success. And then an extreme level of discipline in the implementation of those views. And David held all of those in space. You know, we tend to make people into saints or sinners, and David certainly has led them on the same side of that equation. Is there anything he did that you try to forget? <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody's perfect. So I, I would say that in my, in my years after I left, I certainly tried to test many of the principles that he espoused in investing. And the vast majority of them, I decided he was right. Uh, there are some modus operandi about how he went about what he did. I think to be as gifted of an investor as he was, and this is true of many, many of the very, very top investors, they do have a little bit of a screw loose. Um, they have a little bit of an obsession. And in David's case, I would argue that it, he really viewed the world in black and white. And so he viewed the way he invested as the right way to invest. And anyone who crossed him in those thoughts, he saw as completely wrong. And he didn't really separate that on his investing, but he invested with money managers. So oftentimes, for example, managers in his portfolio, uh, there was one that Yale had money with for over 20 years that said they'd come in twice a year for 20 years. And at the end of the meeting, they thought they were going to get fired. So there's this constant scrutiny about sort of being right and being smart. Uh, that is, was difficult even for the managers within Yale's portfolio for many, many years. And so that's one thing that fit David's disposition and personality to a T, but didn't fit mine. And it's not something I could have ever done, you know, as effectively as he did. Um, so the, if there's one thing that I quickly forgot, it's I prefer to be hard on issues and soft on people. And he tended to blend the two. Well, let's talk about manager interviews for a second. You and I each have probably done at least 2,000 manager interviews or due diligences. What are some of your more memorable conversations, not just at Yale, but throughout your history, good or bad, that gave you an instant and correct impression of that asset manager? And these are the ones that years later you look back on and say, nailed it, got it. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, I'll tell you a fun one because it's probably not the most obvious one. I met Warren Buffett for the first time in, I think it was 2008, 2007 or 2008. And I spent a number of hours with him. And when I finished, my initial thought was, I can't, you know, given what I've done for so many years, I can't believe I didn't meet him earlier because it's so obvious that, you know, you meet a few billionaires along the way being in the hedge fund business, but he might've been the only one that I thought you could put him in a corner and 20 years later, he'd walk out with a billion dollars. And the reason I say it is because if I had invested, I had been invested a little bit in Berkshire Hathaway along, but if I invested at that point forward for the last 15 years, it would have been an extraordinary investment. So I nailed it, but I thought I was too late. So that's, that's sort of a fun one. There are many along the way, you know, sometimes it's the person, sometimes it's the strategy, the, the greatest investment, um, strategy that I was ever involved with, <laughs> maybe until some of the crypto stuff until last year was the subprime mortgage short. And we happened to be invested with John Paulson and then got out afterwards. And it wasn't so much him necessarily, but that strategy at the time was by far the greatest risk reward I'd ever seen. And it. It fit a thesis that we had at the time about the world changing 
um, that played out. And so, you know, I, I remember the meeting. I remember a few years later being in his office and sharing with him the slide in his presentation that said, if this happened, if housing prices didn't go up, they would make whatever it was, 10, 12 times their money and putting it in front of him saying, what do you think? And he looked down and he said, yeah, it worked. So sometimes, you know, you put these presentations together, you don't really know what's going to happen. Um, there are many, many people along the way that I've had the good fortune to be invested with. And, you know, some still today that are just truly, truly exceptional. It's hard to name a few names because there are a lot. You must have developed a number of insights as to what makes some investors successful and others less. We have a line of FAs and financial advisors and registry advisors, institutional investors who listen to this, who interview and hire money managers. What are your top three or four observations about that, about what makes one investor successful and perhaps another you know, chase the hot dot, got lucky, but you know, it's not going to last. And in fact, it doesn't. Let me start with why it's hard. Because if you lay out what those criteria are, and we could do that, right? Someone's very smart. They have a great pedigree. They have a great process, a great philosophy, a team, all this have been together for a long time. If you laid all that out, there are far more managers who fit those descriptions that you could lay out then there are ones that are deeply, deeply exceptional in the, in the top couple percent. So it's very hard to articulate. And by the way, you can't let go of any of those. I just interviewed Sarah Samuels from my podcast who runs research at the giant consultant NEPC. They have a 265 question checklist of managers. And I've looked through it. There probably isn't a single question on that checklist that isn't valuable. Um, and so what is it that makes it work? for someone who's really exceptional. I, I think there are only a few things on top of that. One is if you meet a few thousand and you know, by definition, most of those thousand aren't and can't be in those top, you know, one or two or 3%, you have to wait until you find that person who so blows you away about everything, about who they are, how they compete, their integrity, their intelligence, their worldly wisdom, their their flexibility, and most importantly, their behavioral temperament. Those are the ones that maybe have a chance to be in that upper, upper echelon. Let's talk about temperament for a second, because you don't, I, I share um, these interview guides with my guests sometimes, but I also have sort of secret follow questions. And one of this was temperament, and I put next to it a phrase that someone I've done due diligence with and I use all the time, which is terminal uniqueness. This is a phrase for investment managers who think they're smarter than everyone else, who are, uh, think they're the masters of the universe. They're, they're what we call terminally unique because they think they are unique and we know they're terminal. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, these are the guys who are going to blow up, uh, because they, you know, I've always believed that great investment managers are right, you know, 55% of the time. They're right a little more than average and they size their bets right. So talk about the temperament of someone who can do it repeatedly year after year versus someone who gets lucky. John, you know this when you see it. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of confidence and conviction for someone to be different from others, which is what it, particularly in the public markets, which is what it takes 
for someone to be exceptional. Now, at the same time, the people who get it right, walk this line between a degree of confidence that allows them to stick to their knitting and a degree of humility that they understand very deeply that they, they well, may be wrong 45% of the time. And so the ones who are, as you described, typically don't understand that they can be wrong. They don't really understand base rates for what they do. Um, and the math of how it all works, not just for them. They just believe that they're exceptionally uh, talented over other people. And those, those people often run into problems along the way. The other thing you see is, particularly in the hedge fund space, but I think it's true in all of asset management, um, they're very unstable organizations. Right? People can make an exceptional amount of money in a short period of time um, through performance. And that changes people. Um, Charlie Ellis likes to say that money makes people more of what they already are. And so what you find sometimes is that there are managers who may be truly exceptional all the way through, and then they extend into areas that some people can call this style drift or you can call it whatever you want, but they extend into areas where they think they have differentiated expertise and they don't. Um, and those areas invariably carry higher risk than what they were doing before. And they probably underappreciate that risk. The people with excess amount of hubris um, tend to extend that, that risk into an area where they're no longer the most exceptional, you know, smartest person in the room. You mentioned meeting Warren Buffett. You obviously garnered some headlines for making a bet with him. Tell us about it. How did it come to be? What happened? What did you learn? And do you think it has had any lasting impact on how you think about things? <laughs> Back in the summer of, well, I guess 15 years ago now, 2007, I had read a transcript of Warren talking to a bunch of college students and he had made a comment about hedge funds in the market. And he was asked about that and made the comment that I guess he had proposed some bet unclear what it was and said, well, nobody took me up on it. I must've been right. And at the time I thought he was bullshit. And the reason I thought he was full of shit was that if you go back to 2007, um, with, I should say with a normalized interest rate environment, the, the S and P 500 was trading at an all time high and hedge funds had clipped along in a fairly, you know, correlated to the market, but not highly correlated, sort of clipped along making equity like returns with a lot less risk. And if you compared those two at that point in time, I said, I thought it was an apples to oranges comparison. Uh, if you wouldn't want to bet on the S&P going into, you know, at a, at a very expensive prices. So you'd probably want to bet on anything else. Hedge funds seemed like a reasonable thing to bet on. Happened to know a little bit about it at the time. And so I dropped them a letter and it turned into a correspondence back and forth that got consummated in a charitable wager that pitted the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund against a group of five hedge fund funds for 10 years. Um, it looked pretty good for the hedge funds. The bet started in January 1, 2008. So it looked awfully good for about, oh, I guess it was about 15, 16 months. I think at one point in time, the hedge funds were probably up 50%, which uh, prior to that time, the, the, the margin of difference between the two only ran like one or 2% a year. So it really looked like the bet was all but over. Uh, and then the Fed came in and it was a different story from then until you know 2017. So sure enough, you know, Warren 
won the bet and the money went to a fantastic charity in Omaha. So there's a bunch of lessons. First was, which something I was aware of at the time is how brilliantly Warren uh, manages the message. After that 15 months, the S&P didn't get ahead of hedge funds for, I don't remember what it was, five or six years. So it took a while to come back. And Warren said next to nothing about the bet. At, at, the, at the annual meeting every year, he would put up the results and say, right before lunch, as you see, as you can see, I'm losing, let's go to lunch. It was the only thing he would say. He started writing about it when the market went up above hedge funds. And then he effectively announced that he won, I was surprised by this, at the end of the ninth year of the bet. But it was a 10-year bet. So you might ask the question, why? Why did he announce it then? And I have not talked to him about this, but I think the answer is, that at the end of the ninth, the end of the ninth year was the first time that the market was ahead of all five of the fund of funds. And there was another year left. And in that last year, it turned out the market did end up ahead of all five, but it didn't have to. And his story might've changed or might've had to change if this random hedge fund of funds beat the market. Um, so he told the story that he wanted to tell, uh, as if. It was a fait accompli from the beginning, the only time he could. So let me zoom out since we're talking about uh, purpose and ask an even bigger picture question. What's the purpose of investing? And overall, how well do you think the investment industry is doing in fulfilling that purpose? The purpose of investing can be very different for different people, but, but generally speaking, it's to grow capital in order to service some spending needs. That could be the spending needs of retirees for pension funds. It could be the development of universities or foundations, uh, lots of different things. It could be an individual who's looking to, you know, earn money for retirement. So now the, it's a really tricky question about whether the investment industry has served that. If you asked David, he would, he would say, and did say in his second book, absolutely not. In fact, it's been the biggest travesty you could imagine. Because all of these, particularly the public markets, all these active managers as a group um, are the market and they underperform by the amount of their fees and on and on and on. All of which is factually correct. However, without those active managers, John Bogle would not have created the index fund. Without the index fund, you would not have the advent of the technologies like ETFs and other ways of getting exposure to the market. So I think it's a, it's a bit of a subtle question, you could make the claim that the price for the services charged has been too high and go back to Fred Schwed's where the customer's yachts and it's the money managers who are in the yachts, not the people giving them the money. And I, and I think the data would show that that's the case. Um, but I think the sophistication of, of what's available today, particularly for less sophisticated investors, the reason why it's been so hard to beat the S&P 500 for active managers so what Michael Mobison refers to as the paradox of skill. There are so many sophisticated people trying to beat the market that although their absolute skill in security selection has gotten better and better and better relative to each other, that band has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, so you could ask the question, does that mean they do a disservice today to the markets? Perhaps, but you couldn't have gotten there without the investment industry advancing, becoming more knowledgeable, becoming more skillful along the way. So it's a hard, it's a hard question to dissect. Uh, and I think if you separated out the price for the service from the service, that would be much easier. There's no doubt that the service of 
the efficient allocation of capital has accelerated and become far better than it ever has been before. You can reasonably ask whether the price for those services paid is too high. And I think that's a fair question. Let me ask a, a different angle on the question. As you said, the purpose is to grow capital to offset some sort of future or current spending, save for retirement or buy a house. So in effect, it's at least for the investor, for society, we could talk about intermediation of capital, but leave that aside for them. Those are absolute real world denominated liabilities. And yet, as you said, you know, they don't beat the market. And yet we also know that 75 to 94% of your returns are determined by the market, not by skill in picking stocks or anything. Why do we keep on focusing solely on relative returns? Did I beat the S&P? Um, to just make this very clear uh, for the listeners, if I'm a portfolio manager and I'm down eight in a down 10% market, I have done heroically, right? I've outperformed the S&P by 200 basis points. Um, I'm probably the top decile of returns and everything is great, but my customers have 92 cents on the dollar to pay for retirement. On the other hand, if, if I'm up eight in an up 10 market, I'm horrible, probably the last quartile of returns, but my customers have a dollar eight, right? So is the focus on relative returns the right one for the industry? Yes and no. Um, so John, for the, for what you're saying about purpose, you're absolutely right that you shouldn't get to relative returns. And I learned this very early on in doing the podcast. I had Josh Brown on as one of my first 10 guests, the colorful CEO of Results Wealth Management. And every, every time I wanted to ask him about something I thought was clever, a hedge fund, venture capital, private equity, he'd say, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it. And the point was that the clients didn't need many of those instruments to meet their own objectives. Um, and so at a high level, you're absolutely right that the purpose of the capital, if it's to compound wealth, it doesn't really matter how you're doing relative to anything else. That said, once you've established the framework for how you want to approach investing, um, you could ask the question, what do you do with your time? And when you get into, can you do better then? Does it matter today that David Swenson generated such extraordinary returns for Yale that Yale is able to afford better facilities, better professors, uh, need blind admissions and on and on and on relative to uh, many other, you know, most universities in the world, including Harvard. Um, that matters a lot because the world is full of, of competition. And so it does matter if you can do better than your peer uh, over time, because you can afford more, you can do more with it. And that's where you get into the implementation of that high level. Isn't it better to have a dollar eight than 92 cents? Absolutely. But we're not really talking about one year. If you knew that your hundred cents was going to 92, you, you just keep it in cash. Right? Your expected return is positive, and the question is how positive can you get? And so the tricky thing that people um, properly criticize, again, goes back to this, are you paying too much for this? And many times the answer has been yes. But it's almost, I, I almost agree with 
this un-American idea of like, do we really just want the average? Now, for some people, there's no doubt that the average is the right way to go. Say the S&P 500 index fund will absolutely do the trick, but it really won't it, for, relative to someone who has an opportunity to do better. Um, and probably the best example of that is a venture capital. Um, because if you look at the venture capital industry as a whole, which has by far the highest fees of anything in asset management, particularly the top tier venture capitalists, um, they have generated such extraordinary results compared to anything else you could have invested in um, that you can't make any other argument other than that's been a fabulous place to be, irrespective of how much you've paid for that service. So you've personally been very charitable with your time and money, and particularly with regard to promoting the best parts of investing and mentoring and training future generations. But I want to ask you about a charity that has actually nothing to do with investing called Cycles for Survival. I think you even wrote a Harvard Business School case study about it. What's that cause about and why are you so involved? Sure. Uh, Cycle for Survival is an amazing organization that uh, raises money for rare cancer research at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, rare cancers constitute something like 50% of all cancers. But because no one of them is in the spotlight, they historically have not gotten the kind of funding that you would have seen and, you know, for more common cancers, breast cancers. Um, a classmate of mine from business school, Jennifer Goodman Lynn, contracted Ewing's sarcoma uh, a long time ago. And um, when she was in one of her periods of remission, she decided she wanted to give back. And she was an avid uh, spin cyclist. And so she started, it started as for a couple of years as spin for survival. She gathered a, a bunch of classmates together and some friends and raised a little bit of money and in the basement of an equinox in, in uh, Times and Warner Center in New York um, and thought she would raise 10 or $15,000 and it would be a wonderful thing. Um, she was an effervescent person, um, just a magnet of energy. And I think that first event raised something like $250,000. Um, now, however many years later, um, the, the event has crossed over $300 million. Uh, it was just extraordinary. And it's an incredible event for people who haven't participated in it because anyone can hop on a bike, a spin bike, right? Someone who is actually struggling with cancer can hop on the bike and turn the wheel once or twice. And so people really rally around uh, the doctor's the instructors at Equinox, and that's a partnership with Equinox now, and, and people who are having their own struggles, they form their own teams all over the country, at this point, probably all over the world, um, and do these rides. And it's just uh, an amazingly inspiring event and probably the best hour spin ride that you'll have all year, every year. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about and why? Um, Boy, there's a lot going on in what, in what we're doing that's, that's really, really fun. I spent a lot of my time just in this ecosystem of investing and allocators and money managers still do. And the, the thing I'm probably most excited about is finding a slightly different way of bringing people back together now that we can. Um, conferences are starting and I have some ideas and some partners are going to be working on something just to bring people together to really get to know each other and, and build stronger relationships than they're able to or have been historically. Um, in the markets, wow, it's, a, it's an interesting time. Um, you know, we're recording this in, uh, you know, mid June, things have been pretty rough in most assets this year. And, 
I, I'm strangely calm about those types of things. I, you know, I, I think this, anyone who is shocked by this doesn't really understand markets and nobody ever knows with timing when something would happen, but the idea that it could happen was fairly obvious. And so just being able to keep your calm, there's lots of opportunities that will come out of this and, um, just kind of paying attention to different things that I hear from managers mostly and occasionally security here and there. Let's, let's finish with some quick questions and answers. How do you relax? I'd say two things. I love moving. So fair amount of exercise. I play tennis. I work out a lot. And the other is the opposite, which is I just love watching television shows, often sports, but television shows, certain whatever Netflix streaming series with my wife. So we plop on our couch a lot and watch to chill out. What sort of music do you listen to? Oh, I'm not interested in music. I, I, I kind of like 70s classic rock and, you know, pop in the <laughs> 80s, 90s and today, I guess. Uh, not, not, uh, not particularly interesting. All the things that my kids say, dad, can we just put, turn off your music? What's the thing that they immediately say turn off when you put it on? Oh, it's when I'm singing along for sure. <laughs> what are you reading right now? Yeah, I'm in this wonderful situation because of the podcast that people send me books all the time, investment books. So there's, there's two in and around the private equity world that I've started reading. The one I'm really interested in reading that I've just opened is um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I've never read before. Um, and then most of my reading, I just have stacks of paper around all the time. There are blogs, there's so much great stuff and blogs and money managers letters and things about the market. And so I'm constantly reading that probably more than I read books. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? It's summer, it's all coming up. Um, so my favorite vacations kind of blend, it's almost like what you said by relaxing, blend some type of active activity with, with chilling. These days, I've got two coming up that involve tennis. So we're going to Wimbledon in a couple of weeks, my wife and I with some friends. And then I'm actually going down to IMG, the Voluntary Tennis Academy myself in July to, uh, I haven't done tennis camp since I was a kid, but I'm looking forward to that. So it'd be a combination of far too many hours on the court and probably sleeping the rest of the time to get ready for the next day. It's hardcore. It's, uh, it's tough at our age to do that. Last question. If you could magically whisper into someone, everyone in the world's ear, what would you tell them? It'll all work out. Thanks much. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Ted Sides, on Ted's Capital Allocator's website. He lists six shared values, quality, entrepreneurial spirit, intellectual curiosity, respect, generosity, and having fun. And I think um, we have experienced all of that and it's certainly been fun and thank you, Ted. Thank you so much, John. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.